Okay, make your way in your Bible to Matthew 28. The, the plan from before Nehemiah was that we would transition from Nehemiah to the book of Acts. And in between, um, it was suggested in our elder group that maybe we take a couple of weeks before we just jump straight into the book of Acts to, to kind of evaluate and try to discover what was it that that gave the church that boldness and faithfulness that the kids were prompted to, to think through. What what happened? Because they weren't always bold or faithful. And so we we want to kind of jump into the last chapter of each gospel, which which touches on the resurrection of Christ, because that, those are the events that are immediately preceding the book of Acts and the church being established and going out in power and all of these things. And so that's kind of the the thought process behind what we're doing in the next few weeks. So the next few weeks will be in uh, the Gospels before we move into the book of Acts. Because if you remember, and we'll, we'll look at some scriptures, but if you remember, what were the disciples doing when Jesus was on the cross? What were they doing when he was in the tomb? They were finding a place to protect themselves. And then after the resurrection, something changed. And then you see the early church being mocked, you see Christians being scorned, marginalized, misunderstood, misrepresented. They were being thrown in prison. They were being thrown off of cliffs and stoned. There were other threats of violence. They were even put to death. How do you go from one to the other? How do you go from being a scaredy cat to being willing to die for something? So, I mean, it if you're listening closely, you can tell there's some going to be some similarities between the early church and the church in 2023. We may not have the threat of death looming over us every time we drive into the church parking lot, and I'm grateful for that. And yet there are some ways in which Christians are misrepresented in our culture, are marginalized, are persecuted, are looked down upon and mocked, maybe more than anything today. And yet, despite all of those things, all those sacrifices that the the early church believers made, they turned their faces to the people around them, and they boldly, in truth and in love, preached a gospel message of reconciliation that these people didn't even probably know that they needed to hear. But these believers did it in the face of persecution, boldly and faithfully, They did it. And these are qualities that we, the church, needs to have in 2023. And so, again, before we move into the book of Acts that captures so much of what it looks like to live as a Christian in a challenging culture, we want to just take a few weeks to understand where these early believers' motivation comes from. How could they persevere under the weight of persecution? How, why were they so determined to continue preaching the gospel, even when they were, they were threatened? The answer to these questions really is very short. And so if you're going to hear the, if you're going to hear anything today, listen to this. I, I think that the simple answer is their boldness, their perseverance came because of the resurrection of Christ. We'll mention Paul's writing to the Corinthians, but Paul's very clear. If Jesus had not risen, what are we doing here? Right, even today, like, what, why are we here? And so that's, that's kind of the crux of the matter for the Christian. 
So uh, we're going to see in the next few weeks how the fearful followers of Jesus were transformed into some of the most fearless preachers to ever walk the earth. Each gospel uh, gives us some different perspective of the story. And if you've read the gospels, you, you can recognize that. Uh, they don't all address every situation, and they don't all address every situation the same. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're inconsistent, but that they capture things in unique ways. I think this is pretty easy to uh, understand. If we both order the same meal at a restaurant, my taste buds are going to you know, jump for joy at certain things and yours are going to at other things. So I may like, whoa, I really like the flavoring on this thing. And you're like, oh, I didn't even notice that. I was excited more about this. It's the same meal, right? We just enjoy different parts of it more. We just... It, we just kind of realize different aspects of it. I think of the same way with music. We could hear the same song, but if you've got a, if you've got a, a gift for certain instruments, you know, Sam is our drummer, he's probably hearing the drum part faster than I would as just a guitar player. And so it's the same song, and yet we hear and see and kind of relate to different parts of it. And it's something similar when we read through the, the Gospels. Now, I don't want to I don't want to imply at all that their meaning is subjective by any means. Um, only that, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they recorded the same events that happened, but they emphasize different aspects of those events. So on your notes, those are the, the blanks. They recorded the same events, but they emphasized different aspects of them. And so we want to start. Uh, we're just going to go through them in the order that they are in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so today we're in Matthew. Whoops. And we're going to read verse or chapter 28 together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We'll read this and then, and then pray. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going to go before them. He, will, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now... The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There, 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, these are some precious verses of Scripture that you have given for us. They record historical events, and yet there is so much more spiritual meaning to these than just historical. Though we're grateful that these words are true, that this really happened, and we're also grateful that we are recipients of people who have gone before us who are obeying this command, people who have discipled us. So Lord, as we continue to talk throughout this morning, uh, remind us, convince us even, that you have not called us as your children to just come to church and then go sit, sit around. You've called us to do work, to make disciples, to go and to preach and to teach and to baptize. And you've given us the assurance that you are going with us. Thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen. There can be no doubt when you consider what the disciples were up to before Jesus' resurrection and now afterwards. There, there's, there's an obvious shift. There's something that has changed when they heard that Jesus had risen from the dead and then they saw him for themselves. It shouldn't have been all that surprising though, right? I mean, how you can think back to Jesus' ministry. In those three years he was discipling them, how many times did he talk about his death and his resurrection? He's going to rebuild the temple. It's not talking about the, reg, the real temple standing here. He's talking about himself and, and all of these things. It shouldn't have been that big of a surprise, but maybe like some of us, they were a little hard-headed. They didn't get it right away. You know, a, a figurative fire was lit at Jesus' resurrection that kind of turned into a literal fire at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on the people, comes on Christians. And so my hope today as we talk through Matthew 18 is not to just dissect verse by verse. We did that several years ago in 2019 when we preached through the book of Matthew, but just to kind of give us an understanding and a thrust forward of, okay, remember, what was it that made these early Christians in the book of Acts so motivated to continue to preach despite the pressures around them? That Keep that in your mind as we look through Matthew 28 here. Because the first, the first 10 verses of this, they kind of give us some clues as to why the disciples eventually went out in boldness in the book of Acts. So just kind of recap the story, think through it with me. The Marys are going after Jesus has been in the tomb for several days. They go to embalm his body and they get close to the tomb and they feel the earthquake and they see the angel and the stone is no longer covering the tomb. Where's the angel at? Sitting on top of the stone that was rolled away. I think there's some symbolism there. I think he's saying it's done. You don't have to do anything. Work's been done too. Because in another gospel, they kind of are talking amongst themselves, like, how are we going to get in? How are we going to be able to do this? Well, they didn't have to do anything. And the angel tells them. He's, he says, look, don't be afraid. I find it funny that he doesn't say that to the guards who were like as dead men, it says. 
But they tell the women, they say, hey, don't be afraid. And then they say, I know who you're looking for. He's not here. He's risen just as he said. Man, that if your heart wasn't already beating fast before by seeing this angel, it's beating fast now. Surely these Marys, it, it's, it's really revving. And they're like, okay, something's happening. You can kind of feel the rumblings of more than just the earthquake here in their hearts. And they, so they say, uh, the, the angel says, go and tell my disciples. So they get on the road and they go start to do that. And then you get this little aside in the middle of chapter 28. And it goes back to the guards and the religious leaders and the chief priests. And you, you heard the story. They make, they make up a lie. And then they, they say, we're going to pay you to keep your mouth shut. And if it's going to be a problem, we'll cover for you. But tell people that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body while you were asleep. Now, this honestly seems like a really terrible idea. Because guess what happens if you fall asleep on the job as a Roman soldier? A lot of times, you're ending up on the cross next to the person that they don't like. You can be put to death for falling asleep on the job. So, number one, that seems like a pretty bad excuse. Like, if I'm there as a Roman soldier, I'm thinking, can we try, like, do you have a different option here? Can we think of something else to tell people? Um, but they say, oh, we'll cover for you. Don't worry. So, number one, just that's a bad idea in that sense. Number two, it's a bad idea to spread this lie because guess who was really alive? Jesus was really alive and he, he, hundreds and hundreds of people see him alive. And so their lie is going to hold zero water in just a matter of hours. Seems like a pretty bad idea, but they pay them. They say they keep their mouth shut and it's something that is still passed around even to this day, it says. I think it's interesting to note in this story though, the people who hated Jesus and did not want him to raise from the dead, they never argued that he actually did raise from the dead. You see that? They're not trying to disprove that it actually happened. They're just trying to, to, to fake people out on how it happened. They're just trying to disprove uh, the credibility of these people. Honestly, it would be a pretty easy thing if the disciples are saying, hey, Jesus is risen, wouldn't it be a pretty easy thing to disprove? Roll the stone away and let's look at his body. Could have done it. That's not what their point was. And I think this reveals kind of a, a sad truth that's wrapped up in here. And it's this, and we still see it in hearts today. Instead of submitting to the obvious truth that's just plainly there, some people choose instead to embrace a lie. Is that a fair thing to say in our culture today? For for those people here, instead of just embracing the, the obvious truth that Jesus was no longer dead in the tomb, that he was alive walking around preaching and teaching and talking to people, some of them chose to ignore it and embrace a lie. Because our hearts are more prone to do that than without the Spirit of God to clutch on to something supernatural. Because we have no context for it otherwise. So even the most airtight proof of Jesus' existence and even victory over death won't be enough to change some people's hearts, specifically a sinner's heart who has not already been influenced by the Spirit of God. 
And this is why Jesus' followers continue pressing onward with the gospel even today so that some might hear the truth and be moved by the Spirit and believe. That's why you continue to preach the gospel is so that some might hear and believe according to the will and purpose of God. Now, let's go back to our story. The women uh, were successful in convincing the disciples something had happened here at the tomb. Something big had happened. Um, and yet some people doubted, it says, verse 16. Some people doubted. Verse 17, I think, says that. And it talks about how this meeting with the disciples go. But I, I do want to go back and point something out. Whenever the, the, the ladies see Jesus, when he meets them in verse 9, he says, greetings, and they don't ask for a list of explanations of how this is possible, do they? They don't say, how's it possible that you're walking around and not dead? What, tell me, help me understand this. What, what's their response? They fall at his feet and they worship. I think that's an appropriate response, don't you? That's pretty good. I don't know that you can improve on that at all. You see the risen friend who's telling you he was going to rise from the dead, but you know, you, your heart still, they didn't seen it done before really much. They had seen it done a little, but now it's really happened. And now they're like, okay, the, the ladies, the Marys were convinced, I think here. Yeah. They left after talking to the angel, it said with, with joy, but fear. Well, now they're talking with Jesus. I don't think there's fear anymore. I think they're convinced that it's exactly how Jesus said it was going to be. He's risen. And yet when they get to the disciples in verse 17, some doubted. It doesn't tell us who doubted. It doesn't tell us how many of them doubted. It doesn't tell us at what point in this progression that they doubted. But it's clear that they were not all sufficiently convinced immediately and I would say that the text even kind of indicates that that old Dom, Doubting Thomas isn't the only one who could have had that nickname given to him, right? He gets stuck with it, but there were others, it seems, that had doubted. Now, if you move into verse 18, we get into some of the most precious verses in the New Testament to Christians even today. Despite how some of the disciples felt, with not understanding, with not maybe believing in full, Jesus seems to put their mind at ease in a loving way. Um, and yet at the same time, he lights the fire. Okay, so he puts them at ease, and he also lights the fire. But one comes before the other. It's possible, I read this week, that verse 17, that perhaps the disciples were doubting not that Jesus was there with them, but that something so spectacular could actually be true. I don't know. I'm not sure what the doubting of it was. One commentator pointed out that the Greek word here, distazo, is used to denote settled, un- not settled unbelief, but instead a state of uncertainty uh, or, or hesitation. And I think that might fit when you consider how Jesus clarifies his resurrection and what that means for believers in what we call the great commission in the verses to come. Everything that's wrapped up in the great commission, everything that it entails is given in light of the authority that Jesus possesses. And he makes this clear. And in reality, 
probably without the disciples even realizing it, Jesus has been preparing and equipping his followers to carry the torch from the first moment he called their names. Brothers and sisters, it's the same for me and you. Since the moment Jesus called you, he's been preparing you and equipping you to carry the torch of the gospel to places that it isn't at, that it isn't in. And so everything that the Great Commission has involved with it is is given in light of the authority that comes from Jesus himself. I think it's also interesting to note that the disciples, I mean, you can see it right here especially, they don't have the understanding to do this the right way. They don't have the um, the ability to follow Jesus perfectly and to go and do the things he's getting ready to tell them to do. They, they're imperfect people. They don't have those abilities and understanding, but they're just called to follow Jesus because he does have those things. He has the authority. And so they listen to him. It's kind of this idea of uh, military, uh, the, the ranks of military. And so if like an officer says to a private, go and do this thing, the private doesn't say, well, on whose authority? He just knows whose authority. My authority is giving me this instruction. And so because Jesus has all authority, these verses say, he can send whomever he wills, to do whatever he pleases because they go not with their own authority, but with his authority. D.A. Carson helpingly points out here that the concept of all dominates these verses and even ties them together. Look at, look at verses 18, 19, and 20. He says, all authority. He says, all nations. He says, all things. And he also says, all the days. I'll be with you to to the end of all days. That word all just kind of connects things together. What's it all pointing to? The light is shining and directing straight to the authority and person of Jesus. And I, I, I think this was at least partially intended by our Savior to calm the uncertainty of the disciples And settle that hesitation that some of them may have been feeling. But you better believe the intent was also to stir them up and to light that fire. The groundwork has been being laid and it's still being laid here. And I think back to our time in Nehemiah together. If you remember early on, Nehemiah is just a a cupbearer to the king. He doesn't have any authority that isn't already given to him from someone above him. And so when he appeals to the king, he appeals in a good way and he gets a bunch of stuff from the king. He gets this, um, this note, this project permission to show people that he's going to see. I've written proof of the king that I'm, I can do this. That I can pass through your land. Uh, this, the, the timbers, the stuff for the, the walls and the gates, even his own personal home. He got all that stuff provided for. This is a Jew in the court of a Persian king. He has no authority to demand these things. And yet because of the king's authority, he receives these things. It was given to him on behalf of the king. Now consider how this correlates with these early disciples. These, this was kind of a motley crew. If, if you remember their prior occupations and lives before following Jesus. I mean, we're talking about f- fishermen. We're talking about 
tax collectors. Um, we're talking about doubters and, and kind of everything in between and every, just everyday guys in there as well. And they don't have any earthly authority to walk around and do the stuff that Jesus is going to tell them to do. They don't have any supernatural power to do the things that Jesus is going to send them out to do. But instead, they were infused with the authority and power of Jesus himself. And he explains that in the Great Commission verses here. He ha- they have the authority and power of the one who had those things. In fact, Jesus said, go to some very imperfect people. Charles Spurgeon, I love how he puts this. He says, who is it to go out of that first band of disciples? It's Peter, the rash and the and headstrong. It's John, who sometimes wishes to call fire from heaven down to destroy men. It's Philip, with whom the Savior has been so long and yet he has not known him. It's Thomas, who must first put his finger into the print of the nails, or he will not believe him. Yet the master says to them, go ye, all power is given unto me, therefore go ye. You are as good for my purpose as anybody else would be. There's no power in you, I know, but then all power is in me, therefore go ye. So Spurgeon says. Now, when we preached through this text, this was in 2019, the summer, I believe, sometime um, I pointed out that there are, there are three big parts to this that I want to capture. And I'll just bring them up really briefly today. There are three things. First is the command. What's the command in the Great Commission? Well, if you look, you can see it's, it's very simple and very plain. Make disciples of all nations. That's the command. Make disciples of all nations. Secondly, we have clarifiers to those commands. What is that to that command? What does that mean? What does that entail? Well, he says, you will have to go, you'll have to baptize, and you will teach. And so these things are clarifiers to the command. Jesus is going to send them out. They're going to have to go where people are. They're going to have to teach them everything that he's commanded, and they're going to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And thirdly is the rationale for the command. For making disciples of all nations. The rationale is this. The the authority of Jesus. Because he says, I am with you always. To the end of all days. I'm there. So why would the disciples be convinced that this is true? Why would the disciples be convinced that Jesus really did possess all authority? How would this speech from Jesus, if you will... Settle their uncertainties. Well, consider what they saw Jesus do in his life. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him walk on water. Saw him bring the the dead back to life. They saw him heal the lame and the blind and the sick. They saw him calm raging storms. They saw all of that with their own eyes. And let's not forget about what they just saw Jesus do, raised from the dead. Okay, so there's some good proof. There's some good evidence. Uh, Do you remember the story when Jesus walks on water and the disciples see him and they don't know what he, what's going on at first. And, uh, and he gets in the boat. He he says that it's him and he gets in the boat 
and they're awestruck because uh, because Jesus then says, this may have been the other one where he's asleep in the boat and he gets up and they think they're going to die. That's what the story is. And they think they're going to die. And so they say, Jesus, what are you sleeping for? Save us. And he gets up and he says, peace be still. And what happens in an instant, it's like glass out there. I don't know if it's technically like glass, but it's, it's still, they're not in danger anymore. And they look at him in awe and some amount of fear, I think. And they say, who is this? That the wind and the waves obey him. They're recognizing in that moment, this guy has the power to control nature. And nobody else we know can do that. Nobody else even tries to do that. But this guy does. They say, who is this guy with this authority to do this? In his time with the disciples, Jesus had thoroughly proved and paved the way for them to understand that he really was God. And he did indeed have all authority on heaven and earth. Look at verse 20. He comforts his friends. He reminds them. He says, I will be with you always to the end of all days. I think this means that as, as they were making disciples, the power and authority of Jesus would continue to be the motivating and sustaining force for their mission. That's, that's it. His power, his authority would be their motivation and their sustaining force to complete their mission. I would say this too. Brothers and sisters, when we are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission by uh, being disciple makers, the absolute authority of Jesus guarantees our success. Now, that's a might be a bold statement for, for me to say. But doesn't Jesus himself prove it? Doesn't the word of God sufficiently prove that if Jesus says to do something, it's going to be done? And so we have a guarantee that when we are about the business of Jesus and making disciples, going, teaching, baptizing, we have his authority and it's going to happen. We're, it's guaranteed success. What else in life can you count as a guaranteed success? Not much. And yet, unless you're talking about White Castle for lunch today, that's guaranteed. May, we'll see. But Jesus here, he guarantees this. It's going to happen. Why? Not because of your power and authority, but because of mine. The gospel of Jesus is the only teaching that completely changes lives. Some people teach, and you can be instructed and encouraged and learn a lot of stuff, but Jesus' teaching changes lives. The Word of God is the only book that never becomes outdated. And the making of disciples is the only movement that cannot and will never be stopped. To the end of this world, Christians will be making disciples. In fact, your notes say it this way, Christians around the world will be about making disciples till Jesus returns. Guaranteed. It's going to happen. When the martyr Stephen was standing before the high priest and the religious leaders in Acts chapter 7, so we'll get there eventually, but when he's standing before them, probably in chains because they hated what he was doing, 
He's facing death. Bound, standing before those who had the authority to do this. Don't you think that it probably took more than just good vibes for him to to go through with what he was going to go through? Don't you think there was something a little more concrete than just good feelings there for him? I have to believe that there was. With the very real outcome of death, Stephen preached one of the greatest sermons you'll ever read. I'd encourage you to go for uh, Acts chapter 7, read it early if you haven't before. His sermon, in, in fact, his sermon was so impactful and moving that a bunch of people were, were moved to pick up stones and kill him. It had an impact. We see it played out, but not the one a lot of Christians in 2023 hope for. You know something? If you think about that story with Stephen in the book of Acts, there was a guy there witnessing this all. In fact, the end of that chapter, it says that this guy gave approval for what was happening. Do you remember who it was? Saul. Saul himself would later be dramatically changed. And would no longer persecute, but would be the persecuted. So he's there and he's listening. And he sees Stephen's example. But the text there says his face shone like an angel when he was doing this. And Saul's there and he sees this. You can't convince me that that didn't play into his preaching later on. Because he went in the same kind of boldness and the same kind of spirit that Stephen went in. Saul, how many times was Saul stoned? They couldn't kill the guy. Shipwrecked, snake bit, left for dead. And he's hearing Stephen's message. I hope it's becoming clear or is already that the boldness and faithfulness of the church is a direct result of the resurrection of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. Christians today, listening now, we have no authority in and of ourselves, but we go with the one who has all authority. And so the motivation when jobs are lost, when relationships are severed, because you choose to stand for truth instead of a lie, this is what we stand on. This is what we have to stand on. I mentioned this text before, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. Paul himself says, remember, he'd, hear, he'd heard Stephen's message that spanned the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he makes the point. He says, if Christ had not resurrected and not been raised, our faith is meaningless. If it's not true, we're playing a game here this morning, a religious game that doesn't do anybody any good. If he didn't rise, we're just playing a game. But if he did, but if he did, then it's not a game. And all those who believe the message of the gospel have eternal hope that cannot be persecuted or laughed out of a Christian. No one can mock you enough to ruin the eternal hope that the gospel brings. No one can persecute a Christian enough that Jesus doesn't autom- just doesn't somehow not love them anymore or isn't real. 
gospel message that leads to unshakable hope like this that we see in the book of Acts. This is not a new message, though. I, I want us to understand that. It's the same message. The, the, the message that the true church today preaches is the same one that Stephen preached. It's the same message that Paul preached. It's the same message that Peter, James, John, Philip, Matthew, Barnabas, Timothy, and down through the ages, it's the same message that these guys all preached. It's what all the other bold, faithful followers of Jesus preach. They, they preach texts like what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says, there is one God, one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The gospel sounds like what he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what the gospel is preached. And Paul says, if you hear something different, run away. And I would say the same for us. If we hear something different than what this gospel says, run away. This is the core of the message that the church needs to be known for, is this. There's reconciliation, there's hope, eternal hope found in Jesus Christ, in faith in Jesus Christ, not in the things of this world, not in what you're running after in the rest of your life. It's only found in Christ. And that's the message that we have, that we faithfully preach we preach the bold, we preach boldly and courageously and faithfully and we preach the truth and we preach it in love. Question that we have to think through is, do I believe it? Or you can't answer for anybody else, only yourself. Do I believe the message of Jesus as proclaimed in the gospel? Do I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? And do I confess that with my mouth? If that's the case, then scripture assures you, you have been saved. By the grace of God, through faith in him, you've been saved. And when a person is saved by grace through faith, their life shows the change. And for these, this motley crew of misfits that Jesus had around him that went out the book of Acts is going to show us how their lives were changed. But it wasn't because they had figured out the secret to success and being courageous. It was because they figured out just to trust Jesus, to trust his authority and his power. And so the question I will ask you today is, do you trust Jesus' authority? Do you trust his authority over sin in your own life, that he can save you from it? He can rescue that, rescue you from death and sin and set you on a path that leads to eternal life. Do you believe it? That's the question you need to talk with the Lord about this morning. Does your life reflect it? Let's pray together. Lord, may, may we be yours so much that our lives very definitely reflect that change. Now, we can do a lot of good stuff, and it can appear as a positive change for a while, but your parable, Jesus, about the seeds and the soils is pretty clear. The one who endures is the one who is the good seed in the good soil. 
And so, Lord, may our hearts be cultivated with good soil, into good soil today. That doesn't happen because we will it, because we say, oh, I want that so bad, I want it, I'm going to do it. Lord, it's simply because we give you the authority to make it happen in our life. So, Lord, I pray that our hearts are given over to you today so that in your power and authority you might first change us so that we might then go and change the world through the gospel. It's for your glory, Jesus. And so I pray that as as we go and are obedient to these things, that you would make it happen according to your kindness and your love. In your name we pray. Amen.